Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. I'm your host, Richard Jowett, and this is going to be one of our occasional long-form interviews. I've been teasing this one on the show for a little while, and therefore I'm delighted to say that we are joined today by a first-time guest on the show in the form of lead dawn commentator, Mr. Matt Burt. Matt, first up, a very warm welcome onto Motopod. How are you after your recent duties in Hareth and the flyaways? Yeah, really good. Uh, thanks, Richard. Yeah, I think it's been a, a really, really good start to the season. Uh, lots of different riders finishing on the podium. The addition to the uh, schedule that's been the, the Tiso Sprint, which has been absolutely fantastic. You know, I think yeah. there's a lot of pre-season sceptics about that, but I think already it's won over most of the fans. Uh, yeah, it's been awesome. Busy after having four months off in the winter uh, to throw ourselves straight back into it with uh, Portimao and Argentina. But yeah, it's been a, a really good start to the season. Looking forward to the rest of it. I guess people tend to forget. I mean, we tend to focus on the teams and the riders in terms of what is a colossal schedule now, albeit one race less with the recent news about, was it Azerbaijan? Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. So I'm thinking Formula One. <laughs> um, from your point of view, I mean, the, the travel side of things and the impact on the personal life must be pretty gruelling. It, it is tough. But, you know, I'm not going to sit here and complain about having an amazing job, an amazing lifestyle. You know, I think I'm very, very fortunate because I've got a a superbly understanding partner at home um, who puts up with me sort of packing my bags every other week from March to November. Yeah, and I'm, like I said, Rich, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and complain because at the end of the day, you know, I'm paid to fly around the world and talk about my passion, which is motorcycle racing and the pinnacle of motorcycle racing as well. Yeah. Back to GP. So it's a lifestyle choice. It's not for everybody, you know, going from airport to airport, hotels to hotels, you know, delays, jet lag. Uh, but I've been doing this for such a long time now, you know, I'm kind of used to all that. And it's a job where if you don't enjoy it, I don't think it's something that you can carry on doing. You know, if you're spending so much time away from family, you know, I've missed the birth of one of my children i've missed so many birthdays anniversaries special occasions but that's what we do it's, it's the way that we, we make a living and it's, it's a passion and i love it i've been doing it for nearly 30 years and hopefully doing it for quite some time in the future as well i suppose the flip side to that is you've got a massive extended family in terms of the moto gp village or perhaps more of a town nowadays isn't it after all these years yeah, I mean, that, that is the thing. I mean, you know, I don't get a lot of time sometimes, particularly from spring to late autumn for friends and family at home. But I, I consider in that period of time, that sort of seven or eight months on the road that I'm with my, as you said, my my second family, my second <laughs> friendship group. And yeah, I'm lucky to travel around with some really, really good people. We have a proper good laugh. You know, it's a good giggle on the road. And I think we sort of keep each other sane as well because, you know, everybody's going through the same experience. They're all away from home. Sometimes they're going through difficult periods, but we all sort of stick to together as a, a band of brothers and sisters and, and trying yeah, yeah it's it's work but also it's a lot of fun as well so yeah it's yeah. a great experience and the coverage i mean i'm i use the dawn of feed you know the video pass and i mean it's unparalleled in my view in terms of coverage do i have to send the check in the post now or do you give me the address later? i'll give you the address afterwards yeah 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 no but it really is and and what's great about it as well is that you know the sort of the innovation that comes along in terms of the graphics and things like shoulder cam some really yeah. great work going on there really helps to bring that shoulder cam I think is one of the best things that I've ever seen in terms of showing the sheer violence of these bikes yeah I think Dorna to their credit have been at the forefront particularly in motorsport technology and how they bring the broadcast and how they bring the sort of the action and how spectacular and how thrilling and how, and how dangerous it can be for yeah. the MP guys. They've done a phenomenal job over the last few years. Like you say, the innovations with the shoulder cams. I think the riders themselves were a little bit apprehensive about that just from a, a comfort point of view, mm. a weight point of view as well. But I think now everybody is on board with how 
it brings a different perspective, a different dynamic to the viewers. You know, we've got the new audio technology this year. You might have seen the graphic that comes up, you know, sound up, volume up, which is now bringing awesome coverage of the onboards. You know, and, and Dawn are always looking to push that uh, technology envelope, push that technology boundary, yeah. uh, improve the coverage for the viewers. We get some good feedback and, you know, and hopefully um, what we do in the commentary box and what's going on behind the scenes from a technical point of view is making MotoGP exciting for, for you guys that are tuning all around the world. Yeah, absolutely. So what I normally do with first-time guests onto the show or people that certainly haven't been on for a, a long time is a quick bit of background and then we'll have a chat about the racing, finish off with a few light-hearted things. So in doing my prep, I came across a video on Facebook which was called Life in the Paddock, which you did, I guess, probably five, six, maybe longer ago than that. So that kind of filled in a lot of the gaps in my knowledge. But just by way of a summary, you trained as a, a journalist, I suppose. Was there a connection with motorcycles or bike racing from a family point of view? Or was it something that you were interested in before? Because I think you kind of happened along to the 1993 race at Donington Park, the good old GP500 days, sort yeah. of on a bit of a, not a whim, but perhaps a, a slightly out of the blue assignment from your local rag that you were working for at the time is that right yeah that's right i mean i, I didn't actually train believe it or not as a journalist okay from as long as i can remember i wanted to be involved in sports journalism and i just sort of kind of made it my goal to sort of strive and do everything i possibly could uh to do that and i remember years and years ago my i think i was at secondary school my parents went to a parents evening and they told my english teacher what i wanted to do in the future and they said maybe matt needs to sort of lower his expectations about his, <laughs> his career and, and to be honest that really just sort of motivated me even more and, and gave me more drive to go and do it cutting a long story short I left college at 17 which was a long time ago now blimey 1990 and I contacted a, a local newspaper and told them that I had sort of aspirations to be a journalist and I sort of for six months I worked in accounts I worked in production I worked in advertising I even worked as the receptionist there answering the phone and just front of house dealing with customers while I waited for an opportunity to go into editorial and they, they gave me a two-week opportunity so it's kind of make or break for me. I went in the editorial office for two weeks and that was it. The rest, as they say, is history. Where I used to live, a, a tiny little place called Ashby de la Zouche, which sounds really, really glamorous. It's a lovely place. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like right in the heart of the East Midlands, about the same distance from Leicester, Nottingham and Derby. So where I was based and where I used to live was very, very close to both Donington Park and to Mallory Park, which was in our catchment area. I, I'm holding my hands up. I didn't, To be honest, I didn't really have a great interest in, in motorcycle racing back then football was my number one passion but the newspaper sent me to Mallory Park and to Donington Park to cover the motorcycle race including as you just mentioned the 1993 British Grand Prix and that was it I just got the bug I got hooked straight away and then three years later in 19 it would have been actually the end of 1995 motorcycle news were looking for a new road race reporter to cover grand prix so i applied thinking absolutely not a prayer even getting an interview got an interview and i couldn't drive at the time and obviously they wanted somebody that could have a driving license and get themselves not just around the uk to airports but get themselves into europe as well and get around the world i failed my driving test oh no <laughs> Yeah, and I was thinking, that's it, you know, that's that's that job gone. And they wanted to wait for me. So luckily, third time lucky, uh, under the most intense pressure. I, I sometimes wonder if I'd not passed my driving test, how my life and my career would have panned <laughs> out uh, after that point. But I got the job. Initially, I joined MCN in February 96. Uh, they didn't feel I was quite ready for the road race job, so I did a little bit of motocross. 
three months, which I love getting towed out of muddy fields on Sunday nights all across the UK. And they hadn't found somebody to come in. They couldn't find anybody to do the Grand Prix job. So they were like, we've been happy with what you've done for the first three months. So believe it or not, we've just come back from Hareth. My first Grand Prix was in Hareth in 1996, the famous Crivier doing incident. And then I did 19 years at MCN. Absolutely loved it. Opportunities that I never thought I'd ever have to travel the world, cover this great championship. And then in 2014, when BT Sport got the rights, uh, for UK coverage of MotoGP. They had coverage for everything. They were doing every single session as they still do now and still did an amazing job. And I think they didn't want kind of like their A talent to be doing so much coverage. So I got asked to go in there and help them out for like sort of Moto2, Moto3, free practices, which I did love that as well. And then 2015, I think Dawn had heard of it and got a vacancy in their World Feed commentary team. And then I moved into that and here I am. Rest of history. Yeah, there you go. He's still there, yeah. Uh, I should just add as a little footnote that the 1993 race in Daunton was, of course, the famous one where McDoan took out Schwantz and somebody else on lap one or two, I think, wasn't it, down at the back of the back straight? Yeah, I mean, it was, I've got sort of not great recollections of that weekend because I, I remember just walking in and just being blown away by the sort of size of everything. Mm. You know, seeing, I mean, I, I was 20 at the time and I was still like sort of trying to make my way in journalism. I just saw all these sort of like journalists and media and, you know, and I was just thinking, I'm a bit out of my depth. There, imposter know, syndrome yeah I, was, yeah I get that <laughs> exactly yeah that's exactly what I, I felt like it was yeah and then there's probably the funny thing is well I don't really remember many people in the pressure but I'm sure there's a lot of people that were in that media centre that weekend that are still there now sort of 30 years down the line yeah funny enough I was chatting about that race because I had James Hayden on the show during the off season and of course that was the first GP 500 wildcard that he ever took part in and he finished 11th in that race yeah I mean obviously James is one of several British riders that I've had the pleasure of working with closely down the years I remember James's mother and father always used to travel to races with him and I was always always a good cup of tea <laughs> in the Haydens motorhome after every session and uh, yeah it was always a uh, good fun hanging out with the Haydens yeah and in terms of that transition before we start talking about bike racing but in terms of that transition from say the written form of media over to the vocal form of media let's say in terms of commentary I had yeah. Simon Crafar on last summer for quite a long chat and I sort of asked him the same question I mean can you recall the sheer kind of nerves of being thrust into that new environment and the pressure of being live on a huge global scale in terms of audience yeah i mean to be honest i kind of really just lucked into it by the time i got into commentary i was already into my 40s it's just quite late and i did have sort of harbour aspirations and ambitions of being a, a commentator at some point but i just thought that ship had sailed you know that opportunity had never come around and it was funny because it was at the end of 2013 when we went on the flyaway sequence which would have been japan australia malaysia and when we were in that part of the world the dawn of world feed it was it's quite a lot different now where we just do blanket coverage of everything back then there was gavin emmett and nick harris yeah you know absolute motor gp legends in the commentary box uh, and dawn were reluctant to have them doing everything over those three races they, they were just like hey matt could you come in and just help nick and gav out for those three grand prix and i was like yeah cool it'd be something different maybe it will lead to something in the future and that was how it all started really for me mm. and i remember the first time i went into the commentary box in matagi in 2013 just as a sidekick for gavin nick oh my god i was so nervous you know i mean it must have come across in my voice as well because i was sitting next to guys that were just so slick so good you know and i was just looking and i was just remember sitting there going I, I, there's just no way i'm, I'm gonna be able to get to that level or get to do what they do as well as what they do but it's funny you know it's just the old cliche isn't it practice makes perfect yeah and you know once i got over those sort of initial self-doubts and sort of self-belief issues do you know what it's funny because now i don't get nervous at all i don't think that 
oh, there could be X amount of people watching and we're the world feed. We've got a huge audience all around the world. It, it just doesn't bother me. It feels like I'm just sat in a in a room or in a pub talking to a, a mate. You know, it just feels very, very natural. Yeah. And I love it. How could you not love hoping to sort of put across your passion, your enthusiasm, your excitement for the races? I mean, obviously our commentary is a funny thing. You know, it's not for everybody what we do. You know, you've got your lovers, you've got your haters, but yeah. hey, while there's more people like it and don't like it, then that's the good thing. You're still in business, yeah. It's funny you should mention the sort of the chatting down the pub thing because that's very much the format that we've always tried to have with regards to Motopod. You know, you can disagree about stuff. People will disagree with you. We occasionally get comments back from the fans via the various social media. Think, hey, you got that wrong or I don't agree with you on this or you didn't think of it in this way. It's great. And it's just that sort of conversational thing of just chatting bikes. I mean, we love it. Yeah, and I think that's the most important thing as well. You know, it's like as long as you convey the same sort of passion and enthusiasm that you know that the audience has then that's the most important thing for me. In terms of getting comfortable with the fight, it's been fascinating just in terms of more recent years to see how Simon has approached it and become very, very good himself now from a, I think, you know, he would admit a bit of a shaky start because he was way out of his comfort zone, as you would expect, because he'd never done it before. And he's become a, also, I would argue, a, a really sort of seasoned professional in the commentary box now. Yeah, I mean, you know, Simon was very, very difficult because a lot of us in the world feed situation were just sort of, chucked in at the deep end a little bit you know um, we, we'd shown that we knew a lot about MotoGP and we knew a lot about the sport the ins and outs of it you know I was a journalist for 20 years in the paddock Simon's next race or an ex-Grand Prix winner but it was completely new territories for all of us and I think Simon and probably on your program himself would acknowledge that it was a, a really difficult start because yeah. it kind of was just like off the 10 metre board good luck mate you're in at the deep end and it's like anything anything that you do in your life experience is just so important yeah. you know and, and now Simon must look back at those early days and just kind of kind of laugh a little bit because as you just mentioned you know he's so bloody good at what he does you know he brings a unique insight into he understands what's going out in the circuit he understands what the riders are going through and, and that's the good thing I think for the world feed coverage because Simon has that unique perspective as an ex-rider you know which um, obviously I'm happy to hold my hands but I don't um, I can ride a motorcycle I can't race a motorcycle mm. I could probably try and it would end up uh, in a disaster likewise uh, yeah, a couple of broken bones but yeah you know Simon's that element of the team that brings that ex-rider perspective to it and I think that's really really important and that's certainly enhanced our coverage over the last sort of three or four years without question yeah and as I said to him when I spoke with him last summer what I think works particularly well is the time he gets to spend out trackside and then bring that back to the commentary box you know and then talk about that on the Saturday and particularly on the Sunday in terms of what he has seen because he's got that eye for detail that you just can't you know you need a racer to really to pick some of this stuff out never mind the little tiny details he spots on the bikes in the pits yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Simon's got an eagle eye for everything. He's very technical himself, you know. I mean, he's always tinkering at home with bikes yeah. and cars. Yeah, but I think the one thing that he really, really does add value to our coverage is if I'm sitting with him in the commentary box, or if he's watching on the screens down in pit lane, you know, and we could look at something and have our own sort of... Yeah, limited, I guess, analysis of what's going on. Whereas Simon, having been there, done it and got the T-shirt numerous times, knows exactly what's going on. And he can go into that extra little bit of detail. And that's the kind of nuggets of information that the fans love at home. You know, and that's why he's become such a, an integral part of our coverage. Yeah. Okay. Better talk about some bike racing, I suppose. So some big, big changes to MotoGP this year. And I think not contentious to say that the introduction of the sprint format was contentious. A number of people think it introduces a degree of jeopardy that's unnecessary or unwanted. I personally don't share that view. 
what's your take on how it's gone so far? And do you think, I mean, from my point of view, I find it sometimes a bit confusing having followed the sport for years and years and years. I'm guessing other people feel like this because obviously you have Dorna from the sort of the commercial media perspective, then you have Erta, then you have the MSM. You know, there's lots of different people involved in the FIM in the governance of the sport. So Dorna's position is obviously quite unique in terms of what they do and what they can do. But do you foresee any little tweaks coming? Because obviously there have been suggestions perhaps that, for example, that the race results from the sprint should apply to the grid for Sunday's race but that's not what happens so there's a bit of debate going on but what's your general take in terms of how the sprint has gone and whether any little tweaks might come along in the future personally I absolutely love the sprint I was always for it I mean when it was first announced last year at the rebel ring in Austria you know there was a lot of early skepticism and I, I understand that because I think people were you know let, let's be honest this was one of the biggest changes that the championship has ever had it's been going since 1949 yeah but my view was always, you know, Dawn had obviously done their research. There was a big knock-on effect of Rossi retiring. You know, in key markets last year, we saw some, for the want of a better word, some pretty poor crowds at some of the blue ribbon races, particularly in Italy, Mazzano, Mugello. The crowd at Silverstone was way down because Rossi was so popular, of course, in, in the UK. Yeah, It seemed to matter that even though his results have been pretty poor for the last two or three years, he still was a massive draw uh, for the fans. So, you know, Dawn did come in for a lot of criticism but you know my view of of it was always you either carry on doing what you're doing and see your live audience at the circuits decline and your live tv audience decline or you sort of get proactive and you try and implement changes that are going to engage with your current audience give them more value and also try and implement ways of introducing a, a newer audience as well get more people into motor gp and you know let's be honest everybody wants their tv their information their news very very quickly these days the mm. sprint 20 minutes the motor gp race lasts 40 minutes so motor gp i think the new chief commercial officer dan rosamondo made a point of this when he spoke to the media in austin you know motor gp is in a very good selling point really because it's quick fire the rapid action where the fans don't need to be sitting there for two hours on a saturday afternoon two hours on a sunday afternoon i love the sprints I think they've certainly brought something different to the weekend. Uh, it's made it a more high-pressure environment for the teams and the riders, without any question. But from a fan perspective, from a neutral perspective, you know, one we get to see, well, as it is now, 40 races a year. You just mentioned there, you know, the jeopardy increase. There's always going to be jeopardy, whether those guys were in FP4 as it was on, on the Saturday afternoon slot. But I think now, when you look at the, the sort of reaction that we're getting on Twitter, the reaction that Dorn are getting on their social media platforms, just the general feedback, I think, already after four races, the fans have been won over because we've had, what, four sprints? Cota was a, I don't know, I'm not going to say dull, but it was not the classic close scrap we've seen in the other three. But yeah. it's been awesome, you know, and I think it has brought something completely new to the show and, it, and more importantly it's getting people talking about MotoGP yeah I agree totally agree with that and well last weekend's races in Jerez kind of proved the point I think in a way that you had a, an incident and red flag in both the sprint and the main race so I don't necessarily yeah. subscribe to the view that the, the risk has gone up exponentially as a result of the sprint obviously they're races and they'll go for it but that's kind of what we want to see I mean even some people saying they wish that there were two sprints on the weekend you know one on the Saturday one on the Sunday yeah. so it's interesting how people's perceptions are changing on 
this very quickly. It is, and I think also what we saw last weekend in Hareth in particular was the fact that somebody was saying that the Saturday crowd in Hareth this year was bigger than the Sunday crowd last year. So already I think people are watching at home and getting bitten by the sprint bug and they're thinking, I, I need to be there, I want to see one of these races live. So I think that the, the effects we're already seeing in terms of people are like, yeah, I, w- I want to be there. I want to see these guys absolutely going at it, half race distance, 10, 11, 12 laps, whatever it is, you know, where there's not a... Yeah, cause I think in the past as well, the, a criticism of MotoGP has been, yeah, the guys are having to sort of think about time management so, so much in the full length feature races. Yeah. The, the race only really comes alive in the last four or five laps when the guys are really pushing hard. Whereas now, you know, there's no fuel management, there's no time management. It's just the best guys in the world on the best motorcycles in the world going absolutely excuse my balls to the wall for yeah. 11 12 laps and it's just been cracking entertainment i don't think anybody could say that it hasn't worked so far because it's been awesome i agree i suppose and again just to preface this we spoke briefly before we started recording that you know i'm not going to chuck questions at you that put you in a difficult position given who you work for but i suppose the elephant in the room and i actually had a question in from our one of our long-term listeners gary shavit in israel so his question, to sort of paraphrase it down a little bit, is I suppose is Dorna missing a bit of a trick in terms of the access to the sprint race? And I'm talking about the TV audience here, because Gary's view is that if you go to the races, most people, I think, I mean, this has certainly always been the case for me, will go on a weekend pass. So you were going to be there on the Saturday already. But with regards to the TV audience, which I guess is really what the big focal point for Dorna is, uh, and sponsors that are attached to the sport and so on, are they doing enough or could they do things a little bit differently in terms of trying to capture the casual viewer by offering some free access or some reduced access in terms of the video pass because as I said earlier and I stand behind my statement hands down it's the best coverage I think you can find but it's not cheap for me I will watch every single session including Fridays most of the time so it's good value in that sense for me but for the the very casual viewer Matt do you think they could do a bit more to capture some of those people by offering a bit more content a bit more easily? I mean I think there's always something that you can do more yeah and I do think now I'm very very excited to see Dan Rossomondo's input a fresh perspective yes yes the, you know, he comes from a, a background he's worked for a number of years in the NBA and there is no better arena whether it be NFL NBA baseball hockey NASCAR whatever the, the Americans are very very switched on and very very clever at engaging with their audience yes not not just their current audience but working out ways to attract a new audience as well you know particularly they're so so good at fan interaction so I'm going to be really really curious to see what given time over the next sort of period of months and a couple of years where MotoGP will go under the influence of, of Dan Rossomondo because he does come in as I mentioned with a completely fresh perspective of course you can always do more you, you can always do more and there's been I know there's been a lot of arguments for people saying you know should Dorna or should the should their broadcasters their main broadcasters maybe offer the the sprint or a couple of sprints free to air just to show the fans the casual viewer that's just maybe going oh this sprint's on TV it's free I'll, I'll watch it and then they'll go wow how amazing was that how awesome was that you know how do I watch this further forward yeah I mean of course I'm sure these are ideas that have been banded around by Dorna and the broadcasters uh, and that will continue to do so but I think you can always do more the Premier League I'm sure they're all looking to do more NBA you know Formula One everybody's looking to innovate and, and, and try and 
different ways of getting it and capturing it and a new audience so yeah how they do that that's for people way further <laughs> well quite from what i am um but yeah like i said it, it is going to be interesting to see that sort of non-spanish influence i guess you could say because you know we have to say that at the moment motor gp is a very heavily influenced spanish and italian feel to it particularly from the, the manufacturer side that the, the rider talent wise and, and the organization as well yeah i actually like that dorna have taken this kind of significant step to go outside of their sort of normal circle yeah and have gone for a completely different look on it so yeah let's see what um what dan can do because i think it's going to be fascinating agreed and very interesting as you say to see where this goes in the interest of balance actually i must just say i mean i've been one of the people that is perhaps rather simplistically saying show it free to air on youtube and that will solve a lot of problems and whilst it might solve some problems it might create some different problems because you never know but in the interest yeah. of balance for example i spotted recently one of your ex-co-hosts matt dunn who's a bit of a uber genius in terms of social media and engagement and stuff pushing back quite hard on the notion of just offering stuff for free so it will be interesting to see what dan does in terms of perhaps employing things like i don't know tiktok or whatever to give little glimpses of stuff that pull people in yeah no absolutely and I think i'm not I, an expert i'm pretty sure that sky sports in italy i'm, I'm sure that they did that uh portamau they did show the sprint i think they did well it, it was on their youtube channel so it'll be interesting actually to see how that went in terms of their initial audience for that tiso sprint in portamau and, and whether there's been a, a noticeable knock on effect of subscribers now or more subscribers coming into the the main coverage um, um, but yeah, it was interesting that they offered that as a free to wear right at the start. But yeah, yeah, Matt's the um Matt's the young generation, isn't he? I mean, he's the social yeah. media generation. I mean, he's, he's he's light years ahead of me. I mean, you know, I can just barely switch my laptop on, you know, and <laughs> log into Twitter. That's my extent to sort of technology and social media. You know, I look at I look at the youngsters in the in the press room now, and they're sort of editing videos. They're doing this and this, and I'm just like, it's just like the clouds all going way over my head. Yeah, well, thankfully, in terms of the motorboard Instagram feed, my daughter is looking after that now because it's pretty well beyond me as things stand right now. <laughs> so yeah, I totally because I guess we're pretty similar ages yeah well i'm i'm 50 this year yeah well okay well, i was 50 last year so yeah we're, yeah, so we're, we're very very close I mean, you, vintage. you do make a very good point though i mean like it's how you know people are especially the younger generation if we are to engage with a younger audience there i've noticed with my my children i've got a 13 year old daughter and an 11 year old son and they barely watch any tv mm everything they watch is either on YouTube, it's on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram. You know, the younger generation are absorbing their news, they're, they're watching their, their TV in a completely different way. It's, you know, it's all to do with streaming now. So I'm, I'm sure that's something that Dawn are going to be looking at very, very close. Yeah, no, it'd be fascinating to see how that develops over time. So four rounds under our belt, four different winners across sprints and main races. Obviously, we're not that far into the championship, so it's reasonably tight at the top of the table, but there's been lots of drama some walking wounded yeah it must be fairly breathless in the commentary trying to keep up with all this but what's your kind of general take on the championship as it stands uh, and who or what because it could be a team has kind of surprised you the most so far this year I think to be honest it's kind of gone to how I thought it would do Ducati again incredibly strong and Pekka Bagnai despite a couple of obvious blips when he crashed out of second in Argentina and then crashed out the leading coach and we're all kind of thinking blimey you know, we thought all these mistakes were behind him from last year 
But, you know, I think now the, the field have got big problems because clearly the fastest rider in the dry this year has been Bagnaia. He's on a fantastic motorcycle. I mean, you look at the Catties, they've got eight different riders with completely different characters, different personalities, and more importantly, different riding styles, but they can all be fast on that Ducati. It's kind of a one-size-fits-all motorcycle. They are now clearly the benchmark. They are the reference in MotoGP, as is Bagnaia from the, from the riding perspective. So I think now he's got this sort of, I mean, let's be honest, from a neutral perspective, it's been good that he did dump it in Argentina and in America because yeah. this would be a very, very one-sided championship after four races and we'd all be thinking, crikey, I mean, he could be 60, 70, 80 points clear. So he, for me, has been the standout. I thought he would be. I think he'll retain the championship. Would it have been different had Mark Marquez and Anair Bastini not, not got injured? I think it would have been because they were obviously two big, big rivals potentially for him. I think now they're already out of it, unfortunately. We haven't got to round five in the morning. And they're going to find it very, very difficult to recover the points. The surprise of the season, uh, Marco Bezzecchi has been a bit of a revelation, you know, just his second season in MotoGP. And I guess it shows how good the Ducati is because he's there, albeit in the rain conditions, winning in Argentina, but he's been fast in the dry in a couple of races. And it's kind of worrying times for the the Japanese manufacturers as well. You know, I mean, it's been a MotoGP, 500cc, the World Championship has been such a Japanese stronghold for so many years. And now that trend has completely changed. We've... Sorry, Matt, we've talked about this a lot on the show over the course of the last two seasons, as you would imagine. So, you know, the rise of the European factories uh, and the sort of apparent difficulties that the Japanese factories seem to be having in terms of response and innovation. What's your take on this? I mean, why do you think the Japanese factories have arrived at this point where one bizarrely, and you can see who my allegiances lie with, but one bizarrely left the sport at the end of last season, having won two of the last three races. Okay, they made the decision for that, but they were championship contenders and, and almost favourites going into the last season, weren't they, if we think back? Yeah. And then Honda just never seemingly able to figure out how to develop the bike and Yamaha slipping further and further back. So what's your take on that? I mean, because obviously you have a unique insight being in the MotoGP paddock, you know, every other weekend virtually. Can you put your finger on what's gone wrong for the Japanese contingent? I think a lot of it is just down to a, a cultural thing, you know, that it's the a Japanese mentality is to sort of be a lot more cautious, a lot more conservative. And, and that's sort of carried on through to the way that they approach MotoGP racing. I mean, the, the European manufacturers, in particular the Ducati, you know, they're not scared to take big risks. Yeah. You know, they're, they're pushing the, the technical envelope. I mean, you know, Ducati were the pioneers. They've been the, the front runners of the aero war in MotoGP. You know, they were very, very shrewd and very, very clever with this, the whole kind of development of ride height devices. You know, this has all been done before the, the Japanese were looking at it, where the European manufacturers will throw something on their bike and just go, well, let's see if it works. You know, we don't, we don't need to do thousands of kilometres in testing. Let's go and find out whether our race riders like it or not. And they're not scared to spend the money on that. They're, they're, you know, they've done a lot of investment behind the scenes with aero specialists. KTM have obviously cottoned on that fact. They're now using expertise and knowledge from Rebel Technologies, which do a lot with former Formula One, yeah, um, and, and we can clearly see that the, the, they're reaping the benefits of that now because KTM's new bike looks like a real weapon this year. I mean, Brad Binder and Jack Miller coming off the back of a phenomenal weekend yeah. in Jerez. Yeah, so I think the likes of Mark Marquez and Fabio Quattararo, who are obviously suffering big time at the moment because of this sort of slum that the Japanese manufacturers are having, that they themselves allude to this fact that the Japanese have got to change their entire mentality towards racing and they've got to take more risks be less conservative 
you know, maybe that means committing more money, which is a lot easier said than done, you know, in, in, in the way that the sort of financial climate is right now. But clearly they're being hammered at the moment. Let's, there's no better way of describing it. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a Ducati-dominated sport right now. KTM clearly coming to the party. Aprilia had their best year in MotoGP last year. They've got a fantastic motorcycle as well. So the onus really now is on the Japanese manufacturers to to really get a, get a hold on this because we don't want, you know, I mean, it's kind of unthinkable, isn't it, to think that, Honda and Yamaha could go the way of Suzuki in the future. I don't think that's going to be the case because I think, you know, Honda and Yamaha have been such stalwarts. They understand the value of being in MotoGP, but this can't go on. You know, they, they, they can't go on getting their butts kicked, for the want of a better phrase, like they are at the moment. I mean, something has to change. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at you look at KTM, they've not been scared. Okay, yeah, they've got, they've got big backers. You know, Red Bull have got gazillions of euros to pump into that project, but KTM have, all, have, have done two things for me they've bought good riders they've bought really good riders but they've also not been scared to go out and, and poach engineers they've head on to a lot of guys from Ducati and, and ultimately that will that will pay dividends one day because you're, you're buying expertise you're buying knowledge yeah. you know they're, they're not scared to go well it's not working right now the way that we're doing it so Ducati is smashing it let's go and buy some of their knowledge maybe there's coming a point where in the future the Japanese have got to look at that kind of viewpoint as well and I do think that they've got to take more risk but clearly in terms of development of their motorcycles because right now they're getting a proper pasting unfortunately yeah I'm feeling rather smug because my viewpoint has pretty much always been exactly what you just said about that there's a and it's not a criticism it's just an observation right. of i think of fact which is that culturally the japanese are very reticent about testing in public i.e during a race weekend but i mean i personally and i understand there's costs around this but i lament the real reduction in testing that we have now because i think that would really help some of the factories to get back on their feet a little bit because clearly we never thought we'd be saying i mean two or three years ago this conversation was almost unthinkable wouldn't it to say that you know yamaha and honda need test days now in order to catch up to the europeans but that's kind of where they're at isn't it yeah, they do. And I think the Japanese as well were hurt a lot more than the Europeans were by the whole COVID-19 situation. I totally agree, yeah. There were some pretty harsh lockdowns over in Japan. I mean, obviously there was harsh lockdowns in Europe, but you know, I think that distance as well... It's very isolated, isn't it, Japan, as a, yeah. as a country? Yeah. Is and, and also the fact that the European manufacturers can react so much much quicker. You know, they, they build new parts that can be tested very, very quickly. You know, I, I agree with what you just said, Richard. I think there's an, an element of well with the Japanese where they, they're almost scared to get things wrong, you know, whereas yeah. the, the Catty Aprilia uh, and KTM will just go, okay, this might not work, but we need to try it because it might. You know, whereas the Japanese mentality is we need to test this and it can only come if we know 100%, not, not even 90%. 99.99% that it's going to work it it has to be 100% it's going to be fascinating and, in, and intriguing to see how they do react because now you know as you mentioned they're in, they're in a big hole Fabio Quattararo normally excels in Jerez he had a nightmare weekend yeah. Mark Marquez is pushing himself so hard that you know at round one he was taking such big risks he got himself injured in a big collision and we haven't seen him since you know so and that's put a, a huge dent in Honda's championship hopes they need him on that bike because he's the quickest guy to help them to develop the bike for the future so 
yeah, fingers crossed that they, they get it right because um, the last thing that we need is giants like Honda and Yamaha thinking, well, if we're not competitive, we're spending this amount of money to finish 12th. What are we doing this for? It's, it's not good for the future of sport at all. Yeah, and just as a side note, I mean, I was recording the regular show with Jim last night talking about Hareth. And we touched briefly on testing that happened on Monday, I think. And from the point of Honda, whilst I understand his prowess as a rider and as a test rider, it wasn't a great sign that Brada was the only person really to turn any laps on the Calex chassis, really, when they had Rins and Mir in pit lane who could have gone out and tried that bike. And Rins in particular as the most recent winner. So it does seem, again, that this odd sort of conservative approach and just sticking with what they've always done doesn't bode particularly well, in my opinion, but I guess we'll find out. But Yeah, I, I, I did tend to agree there i mean i think you know in, in honda situation they've got on paper they've probably got one of the best lineups on the grid this year yeah. they've got mark marquez who's one of the greatest we've ever seen they've got joanne mira former gp world champion they've got alex rins who was phenomenal at the end of last season on suzuki alex has won on every motorcycle he's ever raced on him in grand prix whether it be motor three uh, motor two or motor gp so i, I find it hard to think you've got guys that are so super skilled and so super talented listen to them you know give them equal treatment you know that's what Ducati do you know Jorge Marti and Gian Zarco's Ducati is very very close if not similar to the bikes that Bagnaia and Bathia are riding KTM did the same thing you know Polispargo had he not been injured he'd have been he'd be riding the same bike that Miller and um, Brad Binder are riding Um, you've got Alex Rins sort of sitting there waiting for parts of the test and I can understand them saying you know he's trying to adapt the new bike and you know we don't want him to get lost and get him confused but you know guys you're a million miles behind where you need to be you know like a risk. You, need, yeah. you need all the hope you can get yeah you know yeah. and alex may be the guy that can say well i like this chassis let's go let's pursue this or you know mark looks at his data and thinks well yeah if alex likes it i'll, I'll give it a try and, and i'll carry on running it as well so we'll see lots of question marks emerging about yamaha and honda right now yeah i'm going way off script now but one of the things that jim and i have opined on and it's not a conspiracy theory but i'm sort of fascinated again with HRC in terms of the internal politics of the let's say the recent historical Mark Marquez camp within that team and the new broom in terms of Ken Koachi and the two ex-Suzuki riders who are now within HRC and there's obviously going to be a power dynamic going on there both in terms of the riders who gets what and also in the technical direction because quite clearly that Suzuki was well, maybe not the best bike on the grid at the end of last year, but pretty damn close. And so with Ken having come across to HRC, it would be an absolute tragedy if his experience wasn't utilised to kind of make the Honda more like the Suzuki. Yeah, and I think what we've got to do now is give Ken time. Yeah. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. and He's not going to just come in there and be able to turn the Honda into a, a race-winning motorcycle very, very quickly. What we do know is that he's a super smart engineer. You know, he did such a great job in making that GSX-RR such a sweet-handed motorcycle. Last year, they had a great engine as well. I mean, I still can't believe it's just such a travesty that Suzuki pulled out of the championship mm-hmm. at the end of last season when they probably had the best bike they've ever had. And coming into this year, you felt like... Like Mio and Rins would have been really fighting for the championship. So we've got to give Ken Kawauchi time. How will he find that culture inside Honda? Because I think there's been a feeling as well down the years that it's been very much it's Honda's way or the highway. This is the way that we build this motorcycle. This is what we think. And you're the rider. You just twist the throttle, mate, and get on with it and, and get the results. So you know, I think from that perspective as well, you know, Honda have got to sort of acknowledge that they don't know everything. And they need all the help that they can get, particularly from their riders. You know, there's a lot of talk already in the, in the motor GP paddock that, and we saw it last year when when Mark was 
was injured or when he was recovering after that latest arm operation, yeah, he came to Austria effectively to give Honda a big size 10 up the backside. Mm. Yeah, that's what that was all about. He was like wanting to remind them that where they are right now is not good enough. He's not going to accept it. This is... The- a guy who's still so ambitious, still so hungry, uh, you know, and if Honda don't get it right, Honda could be the manufacturer that lost Mar- Marquez and well, that's not going to look good on your resume at all. Now, do you subscribe to the view, as many now do, including myself in fact, that Mark might go to another manufacturer just to finish off his career if, if Honda do not make the sort of progress that he's demanding and where do you think he might land? I think it's a great question. And I think, like I said, there's, there are more and more noises now in the paddock that Mark has sort of got this air of discontent. He's not happy about the way things have gone over the last couple of years. There's been a lot of loyalty from Mark to Honda, of course. They gave him his chance to come to Mark GP in 2013. He's given them a lot of success. That loyalty has gone back the other way as well because Honda has stuck with Mark over these very difficult last two or three years. Yeah, But I do get this sense. In particular, when he came to Austria last year, as I mentioned, I went to that media debrief that he held. And it was for the first first time I was kind of thinking that there are cracks appearing in this relationship mm. you know because Mark still believes and I still believe and I'm sure a lot of people around the world still believe that on the right motorcycle fully fit Mark is by far the best rider on the grid you know I think right now with the great respect of some of the other guys if you put a Fabio Quattararo or a Mark Marquez on the Ducati the races will be quite boring because those guys would just clear off because they're, mm. they're so good but I think Mark did that really interesting Amazon Prime documentary all in where we got some fascinating insights about what makes him tick behind the scenes as well and, and I think even then you know there was a shot of him wasn't there on the private jet where it was like I'll win with you I'll, I'll win without you yeah and he's got another what is he contracted this year and next year yes I think so yeah you know I guess it's the test of how he feels Honda are going whether he, he can buy himself out of that contract I mean I, I would imagine that's going to cost him a lot of money he's got a lot of money um, but you know when you've got a lot of money you don't tend to want to throw it away as well no true so I think this next year are going to be crucial i mean let's face it we're in may 2023 decisions about 2025 are going to be taken around this time next year if not sooner so if mark hasn't seen any sort of significant tangible progress from honda by this point next year i really can see him looking around and considering his options for 2025 you know, there's no way in a million years I'll be at Yamaha, given what's happened there. I'm not going to open that kind of worms, don't worry. No, no. <laughs> he won't go to Yamaha. I don't know whether he'll go to Aprilia. Ducati, you know, if this situation had emerged a couple of years ago before Ducati won the a championship, I could have seen him go in there. This is not exactly a bold prediction, but, I, you know, he's got such a super tight relationship with Red Bull. He's now managed by ex-senior Red Bull management. So I, I, if there's one place that I can see him going to, it would be KTM, Red Bull. Katie. Yeah. Or my I'm holding out to the hope. And again, Jim and I keep talking about this on every show. The idea of a Husqvarna branded KTM filling up the two vacant grid slots. Well, this this is another thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, I've read a couple of stories this week where people are talking about Pedro Costa committing to KTM in MotoGP in 2024. And you're going, well, I'm not sure how he can do that because all their current four guys are under contract. Yeah. They're certainly not gonna they're not gonna sack off Brad Binder and Jack Miller the way that they're going right now. Yeah, and having what's happened in the past with a couple of the young riders who they've perhaps got rid of too quickly, like Remy Garner, for example. Yeah. I don't think they'll be getting uh, Augusto Fernandez 
Hernandez the chop anytime soon. Doing a solid job, isn't he? Yeah, he is, yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's always been a reluctance in the past that, you know, Marquez has been linked with KTM in the past. And I think they've always gone, well, if Mark Marquez comes to KTM and he doesn't win, then we cop the blame. It's clearly the bike because you're talking about one of the best it's ever been. But now with that bike emerging, there may well still be that accusation. If Binder and Miller don't win the championship or become frequent winners, Mark Marquez goes on a KTM in 2025 and just starts cleaning up. Well, people just say, well, it's because, you know, he's he's the guy, he's, he's one of the best we've ever seen. So it's a quandary, but will KTM pass up the chance maybe if it does come to have Mark Marquez on their bike? I don't think they will. No. Watch this space, I think, on that one. Personally, just love to see it happen. Because whilst, I mean, I totally agree with you, Mark Marquez, love him or loathe him. And uh, some of his antics over the years have been a bit hard to take, I suppose you could say. But of his generation, I mean, hands down, the best rider we've seen, isn't he? But I'd love to see him at least win a race. Maybe not. Maybe a championship might be pushing it on another make a motorcycle. I just think that would really would cement his legacy. Yeah, and I think now, you know, Mark's at a point of his career, he's 30 years of age now. He's, he's had an absolutely horrendous time over the last two or three years. And, you know, he's committed so much to himself. I mean, we've talked about this a lot in commentary and on other shows in MotoGP you know the, the dark days that he must have had wondering whether he was ever going to be able to ride again whether wondering whether he'd ever be able to recover the old Mark Marquez glory I think he can the, the problem is now I think Mark's feeling at the age of 30 he's having to take so many big risks to make that Honda work right now and already as we just mentioned you know in, in Portimao the risk he was having to take has put him out of the next four Grand Prix and it could be already championship over for this year um, so the onus now and he's he's kind of himself put that ball in Honda's court guys you need to do something with the motorcycle to convince me to stay because I'm sure if Honda and Mark return to winning ways he, he won't see any reason to go anywhere else but you know like you say Richard as well I mean a lot of people might see it as well to properly cement his legacy as a true great in the sport to go to another manufacturer and win although winning on a Honda I think already shows that well, <laughs> yeah. the, the amazing talent that he is I mean you know he, he kind of destroyed everybody else that tried to fight him on in the Repsol team but I suppose you could argue it will need to be a, almost like a, go into another manufacturer if he wins on a radically different Honda to pull another championship on that bike it would almost be tantamount to the same thing wouldn't it yeah exactly yeah so I mean I think you know now it's it's all on, on all eyes on HRC to see if they can and um, keep Mark happy, basically. Yeah. Um, that segues quite neatly into my next question. I'm just conscious of time, so I'm going to try and rush through this a little bit. But Jim and I always wax lyrical. I mean, we always focus on MotoGP because it is the pinnacle of the pinnacle. But Moto2 and Moto3 and Moto3 in particular, I mean, uh, it's great, great value for money, isn't it? But do you sort of share my view that there's a... <sighs> I call it a problem. It's a good problem to have, I suppose, from the sports perspective. But where MotoGP now is so tight, so competitive, and where the tracks and safety gear, for example, is so much better now than it was in the past, so that riders have much longer careers, are you frustrated by this sort of logjam of massive talent in Moto3 and Moto2 and sort of the inability to get up? I mean, if we go back to, say, the 90s or even the the early noughties, you had a lot of privateer teams, albeit running perhaps inferior equipment on much much lower budgets but kind of bigger grids in those days so how do you sort of view the current modern period versus how it used to be in terms of what was good and bad respectively um yeah it's a, it's a tricky one i mean I, I i understand your point about the the fact that what we've only got 22 bikes in in motor gp right now and sometimes it might be seen that there's potentially some bed blockers some guys that have had more than enough time in motor gp to, to prove themselves 
It's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, in the last couple of years, there was a strong case for Joe Roberts moving up into a prelude. He decided to stay in Moda 2. And since that point, his career has kind of stagnated. Yeah. There was all the talk last year, wasn't there, as well, of, you know, Chelsea Nivietti was the early leader in the Moda 2 World Championship. The guy's got to be Moda GP next year. And it's all gone sort of pear-shaped for him as well over the last sort of six, seven, eight months as well. I always think that the Moto2 World Champion, if you win the Moto2 World Championship, you, you should be, without any question, have the right to move up. You should be graduating straight into MotoGP. I think there should be an opportunity because, you know, if you're if you're coming up through the ranks in Moto3 and in Moto2, I think you want to see a natural career progression. I think you want to see success rewarded as well. Mm. So I'm not saying that there needs to be every year a big influx of three or four new riders in MotoGP because I think what we have to remember as well nowadays is that these MotoGP bikes are so darn hard to ride you know the step up from motor 2 now is just it's so hard it's the horsepower it's the weight it's the grip it's the huge difference in electronics and it's just into the viper's nest you know that th- these guys they're the very best for a good reason so i think a manufacturer and a team has to be absolutely convinced that a rider is ready uh, to make that step up and i think if there's any slight element of doubt then that that's going to be a problem I, I, you know i think next year if you look at motor 2 right now Pedro Acosta, <laughs> clearly that guy is... No-brainer, yeah. He, he's the next genius. He's that sort of once-in-a-generational talent. Yeah, the, I think even the current MotoGP guys now are quite nervous. They're already looking over their shoulders. You know, hopefully that a space can be found for him. KTM have got an embarrassment of riches, haven't they? But they've kind of created their own problem because... Yes. <laughs> they've been very, very smart. You know, they've got the Red Bull MotoGP rookies, which they supply the bikes for, which means that they can get hold of young talent there immediately. They've got an array of bikes, be it KTMs, Husqvarna's or Gas Gases, motor three so they can go okay well if a kid shines in rookies or junior world championship we can pick them up and slot them into various teams in motor three likewise in moto two now as well but if you have three or four guys that are emerging up through the ranks mm. that creates a sort of uh, a block at the top really um so they've, they've got this embarrassment of riches which will be interesting to see where they're going to slot acosta in next year because i do think he will be the Moto two world champion this season mm. but i still think the opportunities are there for guys to move up but nowadays you've got to be absolutely proven that you've got something that little bit different that little bit special there's not just okay yeah he won one race this year or he looks like he's got the possibility to move up is coming up but I don't think we should have a situation where you've got the likes of your Tito Rabats and your Joan Zarcos and other guys that are not offered immediately the chance to move up into Motor 2 that's why I was happy you know it looked like Augusto Fernandez might struggle to come up but he made it up yeah. and he's done a really good job so that's my sort of take on that one really Would you subscribe to the view that we're quite likely to see Tony Arbolino on a Grassini Ducati and the lot sort of the long talked about but off put off sort of Ayagira into LCR next year and obviously Acosta somewhere albeit a bit of a head scratcher as to where he goes unless we suddenly find another two KTMs on the grid yeah I mean I think this year in Motor 2 there's clear evidence that there are some guys that will be ready to step up you know, maybe last year aside from Fernandez, you know you, you couldn't really make a case for anybody making that leap but mm. yeah this year there's some cracking young talents really good young talents good young guys as well mature heads on young shoulders I think Acosta 100% is coming up I'd love to see Arbolino move up as well because I think he's definitely got something about him been really impressed with the way that he stepped up at the end of last season he's carried that momentum through at the start of this year he's Italian he's obviously um, managed by Carlo Pernat who's got incredibly close connections to the Catty he was Loris Caparotti's manager back in the day
day. Andre, yeah. you know, his manager back in the day. He's the current manager of Renea Bastianini. So he knows how to get around the negotiating table with Tardotzi, Chibati, Delinia, and Claudio Domenicali. So I'd be gobsmacked if Arbelino wasn't on a Ducati next year. I actually think, Matt, as well, Arbelino is marketing gold, I think, as well. And he is a character that the sport really needs as it goes on this adventure to make itself more appealing to the yeah. younger generation that we were talking about earlier on. Because he's got just got something about him, hasn't he? I yeah. think. Yeah, I, th- I think him and Acosta definitely are going to bring some extra to the show in MotoGP. I mean, already you can see that I think those guys themselves, Acosta in particular, uh, is understanding the value and the importance of marketing himself and putting himself out there to the fans that he is that little bit different and he's some somebody that they're going to want to latch on to. I mean, on Sunday in Jerez, you know, the guy didn't win his home Grand Prix. He was the massive pre-race favourite. And I'm sure, although he was a brilliant second, it was a, a slight tinge of disappointment that he didn't win. But post-race, he was still part of the bike up at the side of the circuit in front of thousands and thousands of fans climbing the fence, shaking the fence getting the crowd whipped up into a massive frenzy and you know that's just really really smart from him because those fans are going to go away and they're going to go man that Pestra Acosta what a cool guy he is what a dude he is you know he didn't win the race but he still came up and celebrated with us like he had won the race and the fans remember that you know that's what they love and that's what they buy into is is characters like that so I agree I think Arbolino as well as it's just something that little bit different it'll bring something fresh into the championships I can certainly see him on the Ducati next year you know a lot of riders are contracted for next year but there's still some big seats up for grabs I love Jan Zarko but I just wonder whether his time will be up next year you know, he's going to be sort of heading towards his mid 30s still hasn't won a race in MotoGP whether Arbelina could go straight into Pramac who knows Frankie Morbidelli under massive pressure at Yamaha as well so there's going to be some some pretty coveted rides up for grabs next year yeah um, I'm just going to sideswipe a few of my questions because I want to move on to the sort of the quick fast stuff at the end but the one last thing just in terms of the current sort of state of affairs that I must ask you is this kind of concern I suppose around just the sheer speed that these bikes are going at and do you think we're kind of getting a little bit towards the sort of the 2006 scenario where steps are going to be needed to be taken to sort of slow them down a bit because my worry is and I think even you and Simon have mentioned this numerous times on commentary that it starts to put places like Mugello at Jeopardy even places new facilities like Portimao I mean we're seeing bikes hitting barriers that they haven't reached before so do you sort of share that concern and feel that in amongst this melee of different people that are involved in terms of the governance and the technical rules and so on, which is hard to unpick and understand most of the time. But can you foresee some necessary changes coming down, literally down the tracks? I think this is something that Dorna and the MSMA, all, all the organisations involved in MotoGP are, are, are closely monitoring constantly. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, it's, a, it's a discussion that the riders bring up uh, frequently because... As you just mentioned, I mean, these modern-day MotoGP bikes, they're checking out 300 horsepower now. We're getting top speeds in excess of 360 kilometres. It's like the fast tracks, Mugello, you know, Barcelona and Qatar. So it, it's not something that's being ignored. I know that for a fact. You know, it, it's something that is being looked at very, very closely. You know, 2006, of course, to the end of the 990cc era, 2000, yeah, around that, that, that sort of period. You have to be very, very careful, don't you? Because they sort of cut the capacity. They, they wanted to reduce the top speed. They bought in the 800s. 
afterwards, which then actually created a lot more corner speed. Mm. And then we saw a lot more crashes in corners. You know, there's that argument, isn't there? You know, the guys do 360 kilometers an hour down the straights and the fast tracks, but you don't see a lot of accidents happen in straight lines. The problem is the guys are arriving in the corners a lot faster. The technology that we've seen, you know, MotoGP, it's been great because there's been huge technological advances with the aero, with the ride height devices, but it's making the bikes so darn fast. Mm. You know, the extra downforce as well, the guys can get into the corner quicker, they can break a lot later. And you, you make a great point, you know, you, you look at all these circuits now, some of them have been on the calendar since the 80s, some of them from the 90s, you know, and it's very, very difficult to change the circuits to cope with the acceleration and development of the motorcycles because they just don't have the, the infrastructure. There's not the room there. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, my, my hope is not, I'm convinced that the organisation will find a way to make sure that we don't lose tracks on the calendar where bikes are just outgrowing the, the venues themselves because that would be a, a real travesty. I mean, obviously, there's this move, isn't there, in this future to more sustainable fuel, biofuels. Yeah. Will that reduce the performance of the bike? well do you know what I don't think it will because the engineers and the boffins are so smart they'll just find a way <laughs> of making the bikes as quick as what they are now if not even faster you know that, that that's just the way of the world isn't it you know there's this constant need for improvement and that's what engineering should be you know that the bike should be breaking lap records every race year on year but I, I do know and I you know I have to say I'm, this is not just with my Dorna hat on and my Dorna shirt on but they've done so much work in cooperation in conjunction with the manufacturers and the riders down the years to make Make sure that the sport is as safe as it possibly can. You're never going to take out that element of danger, that element of risk, but they've done their utmost to make sure that MotoGP is as safe as it possibly can be, and that will be the goal moving forwards. You know, and I hope that if there's a wall that needs to be moved back in this circuit, it, it will be. You know, we've seen changes in Saxony, we've seen changes in Jerez, we've seen changes in Mugello, changes everywhere in the Grand Prix calendar where there's needed to be changes. Those changes have been implemented, which just goes to show you that you know safety is paramount for for the organisation. The riders because they obviously have their input as well. Yeah, it's a conundrum and it's a tricky problem to solve, isn't it? Because as you say, they solved one problem with the 800s and just created a different, potentially worse problem. And so it's yeah. terribly important that they don't do that, you know, in some kind of unforeseen way, although it's hard to foresee things like that, I suppose, sometimes. But one, another of our sort of regular listeners and long term subscribers, Alan Fleming, we had a sort of round robin Patreon call a little while back and he was very much saying look this is prototype it's meant to be anything goes and so there's that kind of that constant push-pull isn't there in this sport about letting them do as much as they reasonably can within the confines of the rules but always having to occasionally pull them back that's the thing yeah i mean you really this is the pinnacle of motorcycle racing in the world these are prototype bikes you know they're a million a million and a half euros to build you don't want to be stifling that technology development because you know some of it yeah we're seeing it now aero is now filtering onto the production bikes that you or i could walk into a showroom this afternoon by that that door started from from motor gp technology so it's going to be that tricky juggling act, that balancing act between what the manufacturers want and what the organisation wants from a not just a safety perspective, but a spectacle perspective as well. Because, you know, I think there's been a lot of people say, or there's been accusations over the last couple of years that this huge growth in aero has, has damaged the sort of sport from the show point of view. Because, you know, everybody can now break in the exact same point. Everybody's accelerating in the exact same point, And it's making overtaking a bit of a dying art in MotoGP. I mean, Brad Binder sort 
sort of killed that theory when he came from 15 <laughs> yeah. in uh, in Argentina and it doesn't seem to matter who's in front of Brad he just finds a way of getting through whether it be straight line breaking or whether that KTM is completely sideways supermoto style but yeah it will be something for the manufacturers and the organisation to have dialogue and I know that they're having constant dialogue about as well you know the next major technical rule change I think will be coming in in 2027 so we're kind of set fair for the next couple of years I mean I know that they banned front ride height devices this year whether they'll be able to sort of bring in more stricter restrictions on ride height device or aero in the time before 2027 who knows but I do know that it's something that is just constantly being checked by all concerned yeah and last main question I can't really escape this talk with my credibility intact amongst the listeners without kind of just asking not focusing on uh, specifics because we'll just disappear down a rabbit hole for the next 30 minutes but obviously there's a lot of controversy currently and over the course of the last several years around the whole thing about what constitutes a safe pass or an overly ambitious move and all of the interference uh, let me perhaps use that word from race direction in terms of things that went without the blink of an eye in seasons past I mean without talking about specifics or individual people from being on track or in the race direction or whatever because we don't want to make it personal but as a fan do you find it a bit frustrating when riders are put off from taking moves a bit like Brad Binder admitted on Sunday for example Ah, uh, the dreaded stewards question. I thought that was going to be coming. No, I can't really not <laughs> ask. No, no, I know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been a, uh, fair to say, a, a massive bone of contention about what is deemed as just good old-fashioned, hard, aggressive riding and what's been deemed as being borderline and, and, and over the edge. This is me, just in Matt Burton, his civvies, yeah. sat in his office talking to you now. And this, is, I'm sure, is what the thoughts of every single MotoGP fan all around the world is we just want to see these guys race. We want to see these guys race hard, on the limit. If that means a bit of contact, a bit of fairing, bashing, a bit of elbow rubbing, great. But we want to see it fair. We can't get into a situation where there's too much outside influence. It's a very, very difficult job. But I think some of the things that we've seen so far this year, from a fan's perspective, it's just been proper good old-fashioned hard racing. And that's what anybody wants to see. Yeah, my viewpoint is if you see something in a Grand Prix or in a race that's an idiotic move, a silly move, clearly something that was over the top, over the limit, then penalise it, sanction it. You know, I'm talking about the Marquez incident in Portimao where the first guy that held his hands up and said, yeah, I was wrong was Mark. He said he got deserved the penalty. But there's been other instances I think we've seen so far this year where, crikey, if that was what was being penalised, some of the best races in history would have been scrubbed. Even in Jerez, for example, I mean, look at the last corner that we had, you know, your Rossi Gibbonaus, your, your Marquez Lorenzos, doing Crivigues. Those races in the past would have been penalised when you sit down to watch a race on a Sunday, you just want to see guys going on the absolute limit. Most like a racing is high risk, it is dangerous, and sometimes there's going to be contact yeah. in making moves as well. So just let these guys race. Unless it's something that's quite clearly dodgy riding, purely from a neutral race fan perspective, we just want to see proper, good, hard racing, but fair. You know, and I don't think... Yeah, a bit of fairy bashing, a bit of elbow rubbing, a bit of knee rubbing. Don't really have a problem with that. I don't think the riders do either, you know, just let them ride. It's hard to imagine what Rossi might have reacted like being told to drop one position hard and taken stone at the top of um, the corkscrew all those years ago. I mean, I don't think that would have gone down too well with him. Yeah, this is being looked at. And that's a great thing because that's what needs to happen. But yeah, we just need to see um, a return to just the way that the racing can just be allowed to happen. 
Yeah, that's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the highest level of motorcycle racing in the world. You know, there is inevitably there's going to be contact at some point. You know, that's just the nature of the beast. Well, thank you for being so candid about that because I know it's it's an awkward one to talk about, really, given your position. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're all fans and we like to talk about racing, and racing's what we want. So it's important that racing is what we get. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason why we all sit down on a, at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, wherever you are in the world, is to is to see the best guys go at it, hammering tongs and long that may continue let's yeah. hope they, they can carry on doing that right so i must sort of start to wrap this up in the interest of yeah, no worries. letting you have your day but uh, a few quick fire things now i've probably yeah. got this wrong but a little birdie told me a story about how the rossi to ducati story came along from you is it true that you heard it in a toilet cubicle um not strictly uh, <laughs> strictly true i mean that was one of my better days as a journalist yes indeed what a story that was that was a pretty uh pretty good scoop we had we had got confirmation of that from incredibly good sources i think it was around it was in Aston. And yeah, I was pretty, com- obviously you don't run a story like that unless you're absolutely convinced it's going to happen because otherwise you've got a, a king size egg all over your face. Yeah. We ran that story and then I remember at the next race in Barcelona, uh, one of the uh, the VR46 clan, I think it might have been Lucho Salucci's dad that still runs the um, the fan club, came up to me in Barcelona and just went, well done, congratulations, bang on the money. So well, I knew it was going to happen. But actually there was, there was a situation where I got it confirmed, I'm not going to name names, but in the hotel, in the sack, and ring the walls were quite paper thin i could hear one of rossi's team on the phone back home confirming that he'd done his deal as well and, uh. and, and how much money was going on so not quite the uh, the toilet situation although I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's probably been a lot of secrets and stories that have been broken in in uh in certain toilets <laughs> down the years. Uh, yeah yeah no the, the, the rossi one was a was a bloody good one yeah i dined out on that one for quite a while i would imagine you must have done yeah uh, uh proving the old adage that walls have ears um yeah. uh have you ever since you started the post with MCN then all those years ago and started covering MotoGP or GP500 as it was then but have you ever missed a race? Yeah I've um, I mean I've done over I think I'm close to 450 Wow. I missed a couple for the birth of my son. Uh, I missed the birth of my daughter. I was in Indianapolis when she decided to come three weeks early. And my credit card is still getting a battering for that one. Uh, <laughs> so I made sure that I was around for the arrival of my uh, for my second child. It was when my son was born. I missed that. Uh, but yeah, other than, um, crikey, no, it's not many at all. So I can't be far shy of 450, if not n- just nudging over 450 races. Yeah, so that's a lot of, a lot of aeroplanes and a lot that of a lot of, lot of air miles yeah favourite period uh, two stroke or four stroke for you um, the four uh, the, the two strokes were awesome I mean just that special two stroke sing and you know the smell when you walked in the paddock was amazing yeah. but I've got to say I think the best period for me was the kind of start of the four stroke era the, 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 the 990s when they were snaking sideways there wasn't the sort of level of sophistication from the electronics that there were now you had lots of different uh, concepts as well I mean the, the five cylinder Honda was just an absolutely beautiful motorcycle yeah. uh, what a work of art that was and, and towards the end of that period the 990s the, the racing was phenomenal as well it was awesome it was a proper golden era I still get hairs standing up on the back of my neck thinking of Regis Laconi on that Aprilia RS3 Cube in what would that have been yes. 2002 at Donington and the noise that that thing made was just I mean I, it was completely and utterly unrideable I think most of the time but was, what a thing that was it sounded the absolute bomb but yes I mean to ride it I remember Colin Edwards did an interview he was on that thing and Colin said I think he was asked to describe what it was like riding that Aprilia and he said well basically imagine what it's like if you cut the balls off a bull and then dangled it in front of its face that that's what it was like riding yeah, and jump on the back yeah <laughs> yeah 
exactly um yeah that those early four strokes were just awesome great great piece of kit yeah definitely my favorite period that sort of 2002 through to sort of 2005-06 yeah did you well I think probably the answer to this is no based on what you said before but was there a rider in those early periods that you particularly looked up to yeah I mean the best rider you know I've been very fortunate since 96 to see some absolutely phenomenal riders but the best guy that I saw not just in terms of outright speed just raw talent ability to go out immediately and judge track conditions and just set lap records in free practice one on Fridays was Stone yeah. Casey Stone I mean you know I'm talking you know I've seen Mick Doohan I've seen Valentina Rossi I've seen Mark Marquez I've seen the great and the good over the last 30 years or so but for me Stone ticked all the boxes what what a talent and, and just what a, what a travesty that he decided to call it quits at such an early age yeah no it was a great shame I'll always lament the fact that we were robbed a couple of seasons of Stoner versus Marquez in the Repsol squad when that bike was genuinely a championship winning bike year in year out I mean, obviously, of course, Honda's initial intention for 2013 was to have that sort of dream team of Marquez and Stoner, and that would have just been awesome. I mean, I think that would have, yeah, that would have been one of the best rivals we've ever seen, and just a shame that we never got to see it. Yeah. So that segues on to my sort of signature question then, which is, and this might take a little bit of thought, but any bike, any track, and any rider from history, if you could have any combination of those things what would you like to see it's more of a question that i aim at riders normally which is i say to them you can ride any bike on any track but if i introduce the sort of the rider from history i mean is there an old track that's no longer with us and a bike and a rider combination that you just think oh yeah i'd pay to watch that um if there's one combination of that three that i would pay bloody good money to go and watch i think it would be Kevin schwantz on the Honda five-cylinder 990 at Phillip Island, because I think that would have just basically been one hell of a show, because Kevin was just an awesome rider, huge skill, huge heart, massive, massive bravery, you know, a pain threshold that was off the scale. Just seeing him on that Honda, the early four strokes when there wasn't, you know, I'm not saying the electronics were rudimentary, but they certainly weren't at the level of what they are now. So that thing was snaking sideways, you know, rear tire in the air and Phillip Island. I mean, it's Phillip Island, you know, on the eighth day, God created Phillip Island. (laughs) So before, you know, it's just like, so I think that combination of Schwantz, the Honda RCV five-cylinder around Phillip Island is something that I'd spend my last dollar on, yeah, no question. Definitely works for me, yeah. And does that mean, would you say, is Phillip Island the best track in the world for bike racing from your point of view? Is there anywhere else that kind of stands alongside? Oh, that's, yeah, I think Phillip Island is so damn hard to beat because it just has everything. It's got an amazing location, you know, you're literally, the ocean's right next to it and it's just a phenomenal circuit. It's a pro proper proper old school circuit designed before everything was done on a computer yeah Yeah, this thing was done on a piece of paper and the the layout itself you know there's only sort of like two hard braking zones hard acceleration points it's so fast and flying it keeps the group together you know nothing gets split up I mean, look at the race last year that Alex Rins won. It was the best race of the season. Yeah. One of the best about a GP race in the last decade. It, it doesn't matter whether it's Motor 3, Motor 2 or Motor GP. The racing at Phillip Island, when you walk in there on Sunday morning, you, you always know you're in for a great treat, always in for a fantastic spectacle. So yeah, Phillip Island is just absolutely phenomenal circuit. There are, there are circuits that come close, but for location, style of track and the racing that it produces, for me, there's only one winner and that's Phillip Island. Yeah, I don't think too many people would argue on that one. And then the last question, kind of a variation on the whole kind of history dream fantasy kind of thing is there a rider that you can think of from history could be any time but obviously not the last few years that you would kind of either like to see or think would kind of work quite well in the modern MotoGP championship um 
You mean somebody that I would like to have worked with or seen seen race? Seen race in amongst the current crop. Is there somebody that sort of had the, the skill set or the mentality or whatever that you think that they would have done quite well up against the current crop? I think... I mean, I suppose the cream always rises to the top no matter when or where they are. I think um, one guy that I would love to have seen... Well, there's two, actually. I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk about... Because they were racing together was, was Kenny Robertson, Barry Sheen. One, because, you know, they had such an intense rivalry and rivalries generate massive interest in the sport. You know, the Rossi Biaggi rivalry, when I was covering that for MCM, was just brilliant. I mean, you, you got excited getting, just getting on the plane thinking, what are these two going to get up to this weekend? <laughs> It was headlines guaranteed, and and, and that's what Sheen and, and, and Roberts brought as well to the party. That, that their rivalry took motorcycle racing into the mainstream media. You know, I think Kenny was just a genius, a, a born genius, versatile, hugely talented. So I think that he'd have just slotted into any kind of era and whatever whatever motorcycle it was, he would have won on. And I would have just loved having heard so many great stories about Barry Sheen. You know, he'd have never in a million years got on in this modern sort of social media era because you know Barry was a little bit of a boy he liked the high life you know he, yeah. he rode hard and played hard but crikey and then, you know back in those days you know you, they, those guys could do what the hell they wanted because there was no mobile phones no scrutiny but so I've heard so many amazing fantastic stories not just about what a great ride routine was but what a great character he was as well you know and how cool he was to work with and I was fortunate towards the sort of back end of his life sadly before he passed away I was I was work, I did a few jobs with him for Motorcycle News yeah and I could see what a unique character he was what a sort of magnetic personality he was so i'd love to have worked with sheen in a sort of journalist rider role because i think it would have just been absolute gold it would have been it would have been brilliant so yeah if you could plonk the sheen roberts talent and rivalry into the modern era i think that would be just absolute gold but yeah. for, for us and the fans i have the utmost respect for you know all of the riders in all of the championships of, of all the different different sorts but we do kind of i think lack that kind of personality driven thing i suppose rossi would be the closest to a barry Sheen sort of James Hunt type character that we've seen in recent years wouldn't he but I think if we had one or two of those in the sport that would make Dorna's life an awful lot easier in terms of the marketing thing because we know that they're you know on the lee side of the slope of the Rossi period and they're still having to use the Rossi connection quite a bit yeah I mean it's like anything I mean I think if you look in any sort of elite sport any top level professional sport you know rivalries without any question the more bitter they are the better it is for for, for the sport because it you know it drives interest it, it gets the fans talking yeah. I mean the Rossi Biaggi was the, the, the classic you know I mean there was just so many great headlines that were created by those two guys you know, you've got to look at Formula 1 I, you know I'm purely a, a bike fan I don't really follow four wheels or Formula 1 that much but you know they were very very fortunate you know a lot of people give credit to the fact that they did drive to survive and it helped the popularity of Formula 1 particularly with the younger generation and in the American market but they were also very very fortunate because they had the Hamilton Verstappen rivalry you know which was a bitter rivalry there was needle off the track there was needle on the track yeah that got a lot of people talking as well and, and that's why you know since the rossi marquez i guess you could say was a pretty poisonous relationship to say the least and that also drove the popularity of both gp outside of just the sort of niche media you know the, the outside media got uh got interested in that as well and nothing against these current guys because they're all Great guys, great characters, but th- there's no doubt about it. A- any any sport needs that 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 rivalry, that bit of uh, what do you call it? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of needle, a needle, yeah, a bit, yeah. Of, a bit of needle. It's a little bit of a shame, I think. The one place that you could see a bit of a combustible atmosphere like that was the Bastianini Bagnaia situation, wasn't it? Because I don't yeah. think Bastianini was looking at this season as being playing second fiddle to anybody. But I guess we kind of lost that a bit. 
No, I, I, totally. Yeah, that was um, that did look like it had potential. It, it, it probably still will blow up at some point in the future, but obviously, I think in the winter, a lot of people were keeping a close eye on that one, thinking it was going to be MotoGP's next big inter-team rivalry. It's going to be interesting to see what would happen if Marquez or when Marquez is back at the front because we've not really seen any of this sort of current generation properly lock horns with Mark. You know, yeah. the, the uncompromising, ruthless bar steward that we know Mark that Mark, Mark is. Fabio got a little bit of a taste of that in 2019 and Mark kind of always had his motion. We, we saw how that occasionally ruffled Fabio's feathers. Mm. Whereas we haven't really seen a Marquez Bastini scrap. We've seen Marquez versus Bagnaia in Aragon last year. But it was not, you know, it was a sort of fleeting glimpse of what could be. So may, maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need maybe we need Mark to be the, to play the sort of ultimate bad boy role which, you know, he's he's been pretty good at down the years yeah maybe that might sort of ruffle a few feathers i think as well you know again it's just it's a, what we're experiencing now is a consequence of modern society and modern culture as well coming into modern sport because you know these guys are so petrified of saying the wrong thing or doing something out on circuit because it's just going to instigate a massive, massive social media pylon. Yeah. And I think social media has, uh, has done so much good in so many aspects, but you know, it's certainly made personalities, in, in GP in particular, it's made these young guys a little bit more wary about what they do, how they behave, and what they say in public because you know they, they don't want to be switching on their, looking at their phones on the flight back home on Sunday night and 3,000 people and calling them, call them a grey day arseholes. You know, who, who wants to be reading? Yeah, it's a real Pandora's box and social media, which is a... that, that does come into it as well, I think. Yeah, interesting. Well, look, Matt, I've had you for at least an hour and a half, probably a bit longer. So that has been a fascinating chat. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very, very much indeed for your time and for accommodating me with my date mix-up. Maybe we can get together at some point, perhaps later this year or next year, and have a catch up again. It's always great to talk to people that are so tapped in and part of the you know the fabric of the sport. So uh, on behalf of myself and the listeners, uh, just want to say a huge thanks. No, that's awesome, Matt. Yeah. Pleasure to be uh, with you, Richard. And uh, yeah, look forward to hearing it. I hope your editing skills are pretty good because that was quite a long one. But yeah, thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy it. Now you know where I am. So uh, yeah, anytime you need. Real. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs>